Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, and if you want to learn more about Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital URP. If you'd like to keep up with us here at Infinite Earth Radio, go to our website, infiniteearthradio.com, and subscribe to get weekly updates on the podcast and other sustainability and equity issues in the media. Our topic today is Energy Democracy, Advancing Equity in Clean Energy Solutions, which is the title of a new book from Island Press. And with us today is one of the authors and editors of the book, Dr. Denise Fairchild. Denise is the inaugural president of Emerald Cities Collaborative, a national nonprofit network of organizations working together to advance a sustainable environment while creating high road, sustainable, just and inclusive economies with opportunities for all. Denise is nationally recognized and respected for her 40 year success track record and innovative programs in sustainable and community economic development, both domestically and internationally. Denise, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this conversation about energy democracy. Yeah, so let's let's dive right in. For our audience, what is energy democracy and, and why is it so important? This is an important conversation and many, many of our community grassroots organizations are really building this notion of energy democracy into some reality. And it really is an issue. If we're going to change and address climate change, if we want to put a stop to Hurricane Harvey and Irma and Maria and Jose, or if we really want to stop the firestorms out west or the tornadoes and earthquakes that we're really living through right now, that means we have to transform our economy. We have to really dismantle the fossil fuel or what we call the extractive economy, burning coal, gas, and oil. It's an economy that puts profit over planet and people. So energy democracy is really dedicated to building an economy that does the opposite, that values the environment, that values uh, a shared economy, a fair and just economy, and that it makes sure that it embraces the needs of vulnerable communities, low income and communities of color are part and central to how this economy exists. So, you know, it's interesting that we are really seeing the reason for economic democracy when we look at what's going on in Puerto Rico right now. It is the prime example about how the burning of fossil fuel is leading to a climate crisis that's led to the loss of life and property, showing that the fossil fuel economy, the extractive economy, is not only impacting our environment, but our economy. The entire island economy has just totally collapsed people's livelihoods, you know, they're on a long-term respirator at this point. You know, the electric grid has collapsed. The health system and life supports are, are being threatened. 
businesses, the transportation system, our ability just to keep families and households moving, just um, it's falling apart because we are burning fossil fuel. And it's also, I mean, our current economy, our dirty economy, energy economy is also impacting issues of equity. Dirty energy lifts up the racial inequality that exists in our current capitalist economy. Those that are really most challenged by and vulnerable to the impacts of dirty energy are low-income people. They live around these, these, these dirty energy sources every day. They breathe it. They're impacted. Their health is are impacted, and they're also impacted by the effects of climate change. You know, least resilient to extreme weather, and they've racialized. What I find amazing is they've racialized the recovery process. Some people seem to be more worthy of recovery than others. Folks that are in Florida and folks that have impact, been impacted in, in Texas, they get immediate recovery uh, response and billion-dollar bailout packages. But because these are people of color in Puerto Rico, all of a sudden, some people are not worthy and we're asking for handouts because we are in a dire situation. So any democracy is addressing the challenges of a centralized monopoly over energy where profit matters more than planet and people. So I think in your book, you suggest that um, our current energy system, centralized and powered by fossil fuels, has undermined our democracy. So how, has, how does energy shape our political system? The energy is, is actually the drivers of our economy. And we, we are all, as we say, slave to a fossil fuel economy. It's, it's the, the cars we drive and every, you know, that, the houses that we live in, it's, it's, it's critical to that. But who owns the energy source? And that is where it's undermined our democracy because energy is centralized in a monopolistic utilities, investor-owned utilities, really are the ones that are profiting from energy. Their, their purpose in life is to make money for their shareholders, is to generate dividends for the accumulation of wealth for a small percentage of people. And as a direct result, it is not looking at the role of energy for its use value and, and how it's going to help families and communities save money or how it's going to improve the health of our communities and and people who are suffering from example is asthma so the democracy is being lost because we don't own and we don't control these energy resources it's been controlled by a small percentage of folks and so the money and the investment that's being made in the energy economy does not stay in our community it's not being used for community purposes it is not supporting the needs of, of families and households. So what we're trying to suggest in our energy democracy book is that we need to take control of these energy resources to look at it as part of the commons. We can look at traditional cultures, you know, indigenous cultures, traditional cultures, you know, the Native Americans, go back to Africa and other land-based cultures where there's a real respect for the environment and or the sources of, of energy. So when we really talk about the, the sun, we start thinking about the wind. Who's going to own the sun? Who's going to own the wind? Who has the right to do that? And it's now that we're really thinking about renewable energy in particular, because it's very clear, very stark, and very important for us to reclaim the commons, these natural resources to be used, not for the benefit and the profit, of a small percentage of people, 
but to be used for the, the purpose of, of, of home and use value as opposed to exchange value. So, so what would that system look like? It sounds to me like you're not talking about just about the source of the energy, right? It's not just that it's coming from the sun or from the wind as opposed to fossil fuels, but it's really about the ownership of the utilities and the ownership of the, of the production mechanism to turn wind and solar into energy. Right. You know, it's, you know this, is a, this is another movement, a parallel movement that's taking place right now is probably stronger than the energy democracy movement at this point. And this, these are the folks that are you know, environmentalists who are really focused on how do we make sure that we get off of dirty energy, the fossil fuels, and move into renewable energy. And their solution is strictly you know, 100% renewable or keep energy in the ground. There are different campaigns that's really just looking at the technical technological solutions to moving to a cleaner energy future. And so for us, that's only part of the solution. Energy democracy really means how do we not only create energy sources that are cleaner, but also how do we get those energy sources out of these centralized grid, out of the hands of the few, and get it into communities to be decentralized approaches to the distribution of energy, distributive energy, decentralized energy, rooftop solar, community grids, community solar gardens. These are all the sort of technological solutions as they may be, also have economic and equity values built into it so that these resources, these natural resources get into the hands of the communities and they can determine how much energy they want, what kind of energy they want, what kind of energy they want, how it's used, what, how much they, they pay for it. So it's more than the technology itself, but it's the ownership, the control, and the values that go beneath this new energy future. But the values are not just about mass consumption, mass production, allowing the same things that I've been doing, which have been destroying and eating up the earth, but really that the new values are going to use this energy, we're going to use it with a mindset of solutions, with a mindset that we cannot grow beyond the capacity of the earth to sustain us for food and water and for other natural resources. So there is a, a very different approach to how traditional environmentals, environmentalists think about energy and clean energy and the racial, economic, and social justice values that we put into how that new energy future should look. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so let's, let's go a little deeper in terms of what a new energy democracy might look like in practice. You say that energy democracy is about public or community control or ownership of energy. How does that work? And are there models in place that we can learn from? There are a, a number of models. I think the, the one that probably two different platforms, if I could define it that way, that are being tested, maybe three platforms that are now being tested to really figure out how we translate this theory, this, this idea of energy democracy and make it and put it into practice. One is really focused around uh, cooperatives and cooperatives have been around for a, a very long time. In fact, the largest cooperative movements took place in Mondragon in Spain. And that was when their economy collapsed in the early turn of the well, 1900s. And they had to rebuild their 
economy from scratch without the support of, of governments or the private sector. In many ways, again, this is what we're seeing in Puerto Rico. How can they rebuild themselves as much as we're seeing the tragedy there? There's a real opportunity to rebuild a cooperative economy with all the values and principles of earth and people and equity baked into it. So cooperatives are really, they're different types of cooperatives, but the basic notion of it is that it's this collective economics and that we're going to you know, share resources um, and, and distribute those resources in a way that is collectively owned, that the decision-making process about how much, how much of the resource we use and how it's distributed is actually made by the people that are closest to the, uh, to the source. So energy co-ops have been um, in existence in the United States, for example, since the 1930s. We had sort of this market challenge when it came to rural electrification in the 1930s. So there, but there's a new generation of co-ops being formed, and, and the book has several chapters about how these co-ops are being organized. But the bottom line is that they are built, built into the co-ops are, again, the values environment, using the least amount of energy that we can. Secondly, making sure that the energy we use is, is clean, clean energy, renewable energy. Third, that there is economic benefits that can be derived from these investments and that those economic benefits should be benefiting those that are in communities, whether it's jobs, business opportunities, or savings, household savings, or utility bills. So these are the, and that, and that these, this new energy infrastructure should really invest in people and make sure that those that are most vulnerable have access to clean, affordable energy. So this is uh, the co-op power. We have DC co-op entities. We, we have a, a number of, we say a couple of hundred co-ops being formed around the United States with these values and principles built into them. And they're really being done. It's not being driven by the government. It's not being driven by the private sector. It's being driven by grassroots communities on the ground that see an opportunity to take advantage of this changing energy landscape and, and reclaim their energy future by building these, these co-ops. So that's, that's one platform that we are finding has an ability to translate energy democracy into reality. But there's another as well. There's a municipal energy movement. Uh, it's called, and there's a chapter in the book on community choice aggregation. There's six states around the United States that's actually taking energy services out of the hands of monopoly utility, out of the hands of investor-owned utilities, and they're putting it into the hands of local governments. And it's called community choice for a reason. It's giving consumers, ratepayers, an opportunity to decide who their energy provider will be. Up to this point, it was you only had one choice. It was whoever your utility was. Now they have a choice to go with a public energy company, a local government, or a combination of local governments, regional jurisdictions coming together. And what, what's happening is that these sort of municipal energy service companies are offering a better product. They're making it more affordable, energy utility more affordable. They're making it cleaner, a, a greater percentage of their 
energy sources actually renewable, if not 100%. People can actually buy into different tiers depending on what their budgets are, household budgets are, to be 100% renewable or 80% renewable. Right now, for example, in California, the IOUs have probably 30% of their utility energy source comes from renewable. Well, these community choice aggregators are making it such that people can buy all of their energy from renewable sources. So what's powerful about community choice platforms is that it really does not only give communities a choice, because they're public utilities, they have a say. There is a democratic process in which they can determine where where the investments should be going, again, what kind of energy they should be using and, and how that energy should be distributed. So those are two platforms that are out there that's making energy democracy a reality for many communities. So let's shift gears for a second from from ownership models to centralized, the question of centralized production versus distributed sources. So so why does it matter that we decentralize the production and to distributed production meet all of our needs? So it's a good question, Mike. And that has always been the argument by the investor-owned utilities that decentralized utilities will there's no assurances that it's going to deliver energy when and how we need it. One of the reasons, though, you want a decentralized energy is because the further away you are from the source of the energy, the more that you have to deliver it from some outlying area where, where it's produced to your house, where your electric outlet is, the more energy you use. So the whole notion of carbon and putting carbon into the climate and carbon clause causing climate change means that you want to minimize as much as possible the distance between the source of energy and the users of energy. So if you can put the source of energy on your rooftop, all right, or in a community, a two or three miles from where energy is going to be used, you're going to save 20 and 30 percent more in terms of the, the cost of transmitting energy. So that's probably one of the prime reasons why you want a decentralized energy system. The other reason, though, is exactly why we're seeing what happens when you have extreme weather conditions. All right. So climate change is happening. We're having, you know, huge storms and hurricanes, tornadoes. The first thing that happens is that the central energy grid goes down. So, you know, when we look at Superstorm Sandy in New York several years ago, the grid went down. And, and when you think about, and the, last, and the last places to get back on the grid were the public housing developments. Again, the most vulnerable. They're the last Wall Street went up first and, and major you know, downtown facilities and, and residences went up. But when you think about low-income people, they're older, they're young, they're sick, living on the 10th, 12th, 13th, 14th floor, and they have no access to energy because the central grid went down and they can't get back up. How are they going to get up and down the stairs? How are they going to actually cook, you know, in, in their kitchens or plug in their iPhones? So one of the reasons, in fact, New York is probably one of the leaders in the country that took that experience and says, okay, we need a decentralized energy system because we are now vulnerable. Our central grid is vulnerable to extreme weather. And when that grid goes down, everything stops. So in addition to reducing energy generation and carbon emissions from having energy 
sources far away from users. We need this as a, a, a form of, of resilience and building resilience in our communities to stay, stay plugged in, to stay energized, even under extreme weather conditions, when in fact you are not, you know, one, when one system goes down, everything doesn't go down. So it's a backup. One, another reason is a backup option for us. But to the, your larger, your other question about, is there enough energy? Is there enough energy to, to, for these decentralized energy system? I think the technologies are, are developing rapidly every day and they're developing at a, at a pace and a, and a rate which says the short answer is, is yes. And so there's this question about system reliability and whether or not, whether the sun is out today or whether it's not, or you're going to have energy sources if, if it's a cloudy or rainy day. So the, the whole solar array now includes battery generation. How do you store energy and make it available when the sun is not out or, the, or wind or other, other sources? So we're getting to the point where there's going to be increasing amount of system reliability when you sort of attach the battery technologies to, to these decentralized um, systems. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears on you here again. So many important things to talk about. But you write that confronting race, racial discrimination, and racial oppression is central to developing a sustainable energy alternative. For those who haven't thought about the linkage between race and energy, can you help us understand the connection between the two? The connection between race and energy is pretty straightforward. I mean, on the, on the one hand, most low-income and communities of color live near these dirty energy sources. The statistics show that a good 60% of people of color live around refineries and, and other um, emitting sources of dirty energy. The direct result of that is that we have higher incidences, higher morbidity and mortality, higher incidences of asthma and other respiratory diseases, cancers more prevalent in our communities. And so there's, there's a, a factor, a race factor here that has a lot to do with our land use policies that basically put noxious and toxic uses around in, in the cheapest neighborhoods. And so these are where our communities live. And you know, one of the concerns we have, and so that's, that's one hand, it's just that we, we live dirty energy every day and it's impacting people of color. And, and when you don't have access to healthcare, that, that makes it you know, even more challenging where race does enter into this, makes it even more challenging for, for people of color. And then when you when you think about when you think about Katrina and when you when you think about Sandy and you think about Puerto Rico, when in fact you know dirty energy is changing our climate and our atmosphere and causing extreme weather, who's impacted you know first and most? And those are people of color, and it's impacted because one, I mean, it's, it's what we call a, a, a threat multiplier. If you're poor, right, or if you're unhealthy, it is it's more difficult for you to become resilient, to bounce back to the way things used to be. That you know, rebuilding your house when it's the only asset you have, and in fact, you're not insured at the level at which you can rebuild that house, means that your wealth and your assets are completely wiped out. Many folks I've talked to, a lot of people from New Orleans, who said. 
the highest rate of mortality after Katrina were the senior citizens who could not even in Ward 9, who could not even think about rebuilding anymore because of their age and, and what it's going to take to re- reclaim and rebuild their wealth. The incidence of, of people of color living around these toxic sources, the impact on these communities in terms of being hit by extreme weather and their ability to be resilient are all defined by people's level of income and, and their race. So, you know, the, we, we talk about this a lot on the show, the difference between the environmental movement and the environmental justice movement. And and trying to get the, particularly the environmental movement to really understand that at the root of the environmental problems is this economic and racial injustice. Could you help folks understand how confronting the racial oppression and discrimination will actually move the needle on the environmental and the, you know, the carbon issues. You've laid out very clearly how this impacts disproportionately communities of color and under-resourced, economically under-resourced communities. But how does confronting that problem, the, the racial oppression and the economically underserved communities, how will that in turn drive a new energy democracy? That's a, that's a very good question. I mean, and, and I do believe that a lot of leaders in the environmental movement are, are making the link between environment and equity. Um, I don't think it is primary consideration of theirs. I think they're really looking at environment first, as opposed to understanding the intersection of environment, economy, and equity. One example is, well, maybe two examples. One is the idea that municipal scale utility, right, or utility scale energy sources. So let's just do wind farms, all right, or let's just do solar farms is for them an an answer to dealing with carbon. And dealing with carbon is one way of dealing with climate change, but not recognizing that that solution, first of all, still has, you know, a, a good percentage transmission issue a good percentage of carbon is being used to transmit energy from these outlying places to to the household is is one key issue. But another challenge is that, and and decentralized energy technologies really is a a way to address the needs of low-income communities of color where, in fact, they can own their sources of energy and also improve their health and well-being by using clean energy. But, but the other part of this is one example is that environmental groups are really pushing many of them, this notion of cap and trade. And the environmental justice and climate justice communities are really against this notion of cap and trade, which basically says as long as we will put a price on, on carbon and you can either reduce, you know, Mr. Miss polluter, you can reduce your carbon, which is a good thing. But if you don't reduce your carbon, uh, just just give us a check, and you, you will wipe away your responsibility to a clean, healthy environment. And the big idea is that as long as we're reducing carbon in the atmosphere, that's okay. It doesn't matter that there's certain hotspots, that there, there are particular places where particularly people of color live, that that is not a solution for folks that are living around a hotspot. You take Richmond, California, as an example, where Chevron is directly across schools and houses and where people live, and they every day 
see the, you know, the emissions that's coming out and they're, they're living and breathing dirty energy every day. A, a statewide cap on carbon does not address the challenges that low-income folks have that live around these hotspots. So that's not a solution. And they need to understand that a solution needs to be very specific to most vulnerable communities that live in these, in these communities that are emitting dirty energy. So Denise, I think I could talk to you all day about this. Unfortunately, we're running a little long on time. And I'm wondering if I can get you to come back and speak to us again. Because my last question, I want to tease the audience with it. At the end of the book, you note the powers that be, the fossil fuel interests, are not about to give up without a fight. And I think that that's, that's very true. I think it's one of the biggest challenges with dealing with the carbon issue is that there's this huge amount of resources still left in the ground that people value and, and, and they're not going to give up without a fight. And you compare this movement to the struggle to end slavery and you talk about the parallels between the two movements and what lessons we can learn from abolitionists. And what I would love to do, I'd love to, rather than try to get you to give a 30 second answer to that very important question. I'd love to have you come back and and speak to us again about that topic in particular, about how we move forward and what, what are the obstacles to moving forward and what can we learn from the abolitionists that will help us map out that path? Is that, is that something you would be willing to do? Yeah, I certainly will. It's really grounded in our need to build a movement. And I'd like to talk about how we take these ideas and what we present in this book includes you know, the, what, what's the theory, what's the concept behind energy democracy? How can we use the, the lessons of you know, indigenous cultures to learn about how to begin to think about the environment, how to think about energy, how to think about our relationship to economy and, and each other? And it's also the book gives a lot more specifics about how do you go from theory to practice? How is this being done on the ground? And these are proof points. These are places where ideas are being tested out and struggles happen. And we learn by actually doing what some of the challenges are. And I'd love to be able to even talk a little bit more about some of these challenges that are happening in place and what's important. But at the end of the day, go from theory to practice to movement building. And that's what we want this book to do is to really build a movement, get more people involved in understanding why we need energy democracy and how to get there and build a larger movement. And clearly the abolitionist movement is an example of the struggle ahead, but also the, the importance of doing it. So, so let's definitely do that. Let's plan to do that in, in sometime in the next few weeks. But in the meantime, where can folks go to buy your book? You can definitely go to islandpress.org. And I would say that would be the uh, primary place to go. And the book is titled Energy Democracy, Advancing Equity in Clean Energy Solutions. Denise, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Well, thank you very much for having this conversation and getting the message out to a broader audience. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.